with more people who believe that it's the right idea gets spread, the weirder it seems if you don't agree with it. Welcome to the Liminal Zone Alchemist, the podcast for when you're stuck between the patterns of your past and the pull of your purpose. I'm your host, Sally Hardy, and each week I'll be challenging your understanding of what it is to be a human in the modern world. I'll help you free your innate genius from the socialized shadows, reconnect with your inner knowing, and lean into that pool, letting your purpose guide and support you with ease to the impact that only you can make in the world. Okay, get comfy, set your brain to curious, and let's get on with the episode. Happy Thursday, lovely beans. I have a question for you today. Do you know how beliefs spread, how laws are made, how conventions and traditions are created? Well, if you do, great. Here's how I see it. One human has an idea, an experience, a result, and decides that this should be shared. Then a bunch of people agree with them. The more people agree with them, the more right that idea or that experience or the result of that action, the more right that feels to people. The more people feel that that is right, the more it gets spread. The more that right idea feeling with more people who believe that it's the right idea gets spread, the weirder it seems if you don't agree with it. And if you don't agree with it, considering that the people who do believe this thing, this idea that started with a human, if you don't agree with it, and it seems like you're being really weird to not agree with it, the people who do believe this thing very often become dogmatic. They become righteous. The believers of the idea try to convince the people who don't believe it. Which all comes down to this concept that the brain does, to be fair, love to jump on that there is a right and there is a wrong. That's what dogma is based on, right and wrong. And sometimes this comes from really well-meaning people who have genuinely had amazing results doing things a certain way. And then they believe that that is the way for other people. And sometimes this doesn't come from well-meaning people. Sometimes it comes from people who benefit, who profit, who don't add to humanity, but who like the idea of other people believing their ideas, of being right. So dogma is always a hierarchy of right and wrong. It is a win-lose paradigm, and I don't like it. (laughs) I really don't like it. And I've done it. I have felt this within myself, holding a belief so true 
that I don't even question it, that I'm shocked if somebody does question it. A belief like, a belief like to be successful, I'll have to work twice as hard as any man. This belief was passed down from my grandmother to my mother, from my mother to me, and it served purpose. It protected our generations and it created income in those generations by generating women, socializing women who were self-sufficient and who were capable of making money in a patriarchal world. There was an awful lot of evidence that got passed down with this belief. That is often the case with dogma. People have a stack of evidence that they can wheel out and they can show you their evidence, my grandmother's evidence, my mother's evidence. And when we have a lot of evidence supporting something, it's like having a lot of people supporting something, right? There is proof in volume. There are sound reasons for believing this belief. And where I am right now in my life, I am in the very privileged position that I get to unpick the shady underside of things that did serve previous generations, but right now are biting me in the ass. (laughs) Things like to be successful, I have to work hard. These are heavy words. The word work is a word with baggage. The word hard is a word with baggage. And for somebody who, well, let's just say I don't have a working contract with myself. I have a rest contract with myself. I have no problem working. If I have a message that for me to be successful, and that word in itself could do with unpicking, right? What are my personal metrics of success? But let's just use the word generally for now. If I have to work hard to be successful and I'm already a hard worker, that puts me in a very extreme working position. I have more beliefs tucked into this. Like if I rest, then it's because I'm weak or I failed. I have to be twice as productive as any man to have value. Now my worth is tied up with this. This shady underside, as I look at them, I see how historically they have underlined many of my decisions and my relationships. Not so much now, but there are still overtones of this or undertones of it, I should say, right? It's still, there's still juice in that lemon because I've believed it for such a long time. But treading that that wire, what is it, you know, when you you what is it called when you walk on that tiny little wire between two things, that tightrope. Treading the tightrope balance of I must work harder, I must provide for, and I mustn't rest, I mustn't need help, I mustn't be weak. It becomes quite clear to me how I burned out. And I can see how the compulsion that I have to leap up when I am discovered resting, and I put this in like, you know, bunny ears when I'm discovered resting. So that lives in my survival system. That has been epigenetically as well as culturally and in a lived experience, learned capacity 
that has been passed down to me, especially if I am seen by, by a man, by a male. When I was younger, my father. Now I'm older, my husband. And it is not my husband's fault. This lives within my central nervous system, my meaning-making capacity of the data that comes in to my body from the environment that I am in. So if I'm sitting on the sofa and my husband comes in, I have an inner compulsion to jump up and prove myself to be worthy by doing something, by being productive. And added to this, I also have a compulsion to have the men in my life as stressed as little as possible, having as much free time as possible. And when I dug into that, I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> I can see what's going on here because if they are taking it easy, then me working twice as hard as that is way less than I'm working now. <laughs> so if everything's going really chillax for them, then I can be not quite as chill, like half as chillax, but that's way more chilled than I am now. But it never worked out like that. Because embedded in the belief, I still have to provide. And if I'm, you know, in my mind, the only one doing it, or if I'm in my mind, the one who must provide, because this was genetically switched on in me. And culturally, my mother was the provider in our family when I was younger, and as was her mother in her family. So this was just, I mean, like, like a body assumption, just in a, oh yeah, that's, that's what we do. So in my system, I am the provider. And I think this is interesting because as I reflect on this, I can feel very strongly how men, males, natal males caught in that patriarchal system have this in their body. And it does not benefit. There is a difference between wanting to provide using your skill set and this survival need to work harder, do more, be productive that is supported by the culture within which we have grown up and our parents grew up and their parents ad infinitum. It doesn't serve natal males. It doesn't serve natal females. It doesn't serve socialized males, socialized females. The patriarchal system doesn't serve anybody. I overcompensate. I overcompensate because of what I hold in my body. I overcompensate with independence, garnering independence for my children. I overcompensate with practical learnings for them, for me. I overcompensate with being a role model of a mum who works twice as hard and loves it, and then who mothers twice as hard and loves that, who provides more to her family because I work harder. So I'm sending the same message to my children that I received. Work harder, rest less, learn more, be more. Your worth is attached to this. And just, you know, for shits and giggles, under all of this, I have a processing something as well, because my brain processes things differently. I have ADHD. I am ADHD. My brain, these terms, my brain processes differently. To function in certain areas of life, like 
a normal person, again, in quotes, the normal standards to get to be the standardized norm and therefore not be judged by other people, which, you know, in brackets basically means be judged by myself. I have a shit ton of experience that I do have to work twice as hard. If I go underneath again, under these beliefs, two big things show up. And I know that this episode is in effect, it's self-reflection, but I thought it may be helpful for these to be pulled out for your benefit because you may find resonance in your own life. And sometimes I find when I'm listening to somebody's personal story, things connect to me in a way that I hadn't anticipated that they would. So the first thing that shows up is that in my attempt to be normal, someone somewhere decided what normal looked like. And they stayed still long enough to have a crowd of people around them to share their ideas with. They were consistent of thinking for long enough to continue with that message so that the other people perhaps developed a belief and then spread that belief. And this happened long enough to construct a prototype of a human, a normal prototype, the standardized norm. That person is likely to have modeled normal on themselves, right? <laughs> because it's kind of unlikely that someone would have described something that they were not. So it stands to reason that the people who agreed with that opinion were similar to that normal. And if they had people listen to them, then they probably had some kind of power. Maybe that was charisma, maybe that was money, maybe they were very articulate. But it becomes clear that they felt safe enough to have an opinion and to share it. And they had weight enough for that opinion to be supported and spread by other people. Now, when I look at that, what I notice is that automatically excludes as that opinion maker, that person in the middle who wanted people to agree with them, that automatically excludes folks like me with brains that rebel against firstly sitting still for long enough to work through a standardized form concept, <laughs> right? And repeat it. Mm -mm. It automatically excludes bodies and brains that were less likely to be in power whenever that idea began to be spread, to have their voices listened to because they were deemed less valuable in society at that point. Maybe because they didn't have power. Maybe they didn't feel or see the need for conformity. Maybe they didn't realize that what was happening was a safety net was being pulled in definition around a certain group of people. Maybe they didn't realize that. Maybe they were already unsafe. Maybe they were already a marginalized portion of the community and this belief spreading reinforced that. Or with my brain, it's probably a bit more likely that while some people stayed around the fire talking and writing notes, <laughs> I was off climbing a tree somewhere or like discovering new berry bushes or bum sliding down hills and doing things elsewhere. Having changed my mind, about what I wanted to do yesterday. 
and living life. Not to the detriment of my value, just simply because functionally, that's how I am in life. The second thing that occurs to me as I look at these beliefs that are kind of underpinning this must work twice as hard or must try and be the standardized norm is that somehow, somewhere, the writing of the manual of the standardized norm became like an, a tab, a label, an, a, an assignment, an assignation of intrinsic value in a human. Now, there is functional value to the people who could write, of course, and hold thoughts for longer than someone like me, of course, who have a memory for all things and not just the things that they are deeply interested in. Of course, all of these things have functional value. It's, it's really important. It's important to have people in the world who can continue doing the same task and not ever feel like they're being eaten by fire ants from the inside. It's hugely important. Huge functional value to society. Society needs all of us with all of our functional differences, but there is zero intrinsic value difference between humans. All of the attributes of my body and my brain create the contributions that I can make to humanity. I continually take the risk of following my curiosity, which has allowed me to have a multitude of interests, of professions, of careers that I've invested in, that I have achieved by my own metrics in. And rather than finding it flaky that I have changed my mind about what service I wanted to provide in the world, I chose to think of it more like trading stocks. I realized the capital of one profession in my brain, and I take it to another profession, just like an investor who knows, understands, and benefits from the ebbs and flows, the energetics of the stock market. They realize the capital and they move their capital elsewhere to increase the fiscal value. So my functional value, I feel, is increased by following my nature. So yeah, Sure, I find it really difficult to remember names and faces, and I have absolutely no interest in recognition or fame, mine or anybody else's, or rank. So this is actually really helpful as well, because it means that I am a great social leveler. People are just people. As far as I'm concerned, we were all born the same way. We will all die. We all poo. Everybody has a body. That's it. But this means I don't get intimidated by people. It means that I ask great questions that many people, many other people might feel intimidated to ask. And the great thing about great questions is that you get great answers. In my coaching practice, this is so deeply beneficial for my clients' self-knowing. They could be the most famous person in the world. And some of them have actually been apparently, well, not apparently, I discovered afterwards, really rather well-known to the world. And I had no idea and it didn't matter. And it still doesn't matter. My great questions allowed them to find their own great answers. I see because of how my brain works, 
the unspoken words of people's lives, their lived experiences, and that of generations that came before them. And another way that I don't fit inside the standardized norm box is that I'm hard of hearing. So I lip and I body read. And my brain, because of the way it works, processes things that I am interested in lightning fast. So that information that I get from people's lips, from their bodies, from the micro expressions of their faces, my brain can process that at a rate of knots. And it shows me information that helps me understand this human that's ahead of me. Sometimes ahead of me, in front of me. And sometimes that can, I call it my big synaptic leap. Sometimes it's like I'm mind reading. I can understand the most huge, complex, twisty of things. And I can boil really big things down to simplicity. Now, I use this for me because that is how my brain understands things. I use metaphor. I use simile. I find idea babies popping into my head when I'm out for a walk from a hundred different areas and, and directions and a hundred different spaces that my peripheral nervous system is hoovering up data from. And my brain files all of this raw material away, surprising everyone, including me, <laughs> when these out of the blue ideas and concepts arrive. They feel like they almost come as a gift. But all of that, all of that that I am so grateful for and is of such benefit to the world was hidden while I lived in the shadow of an intrinsic based value belief. It was impossible for me to see my qualities. It was impossible for me to value my qualities. And it was impossible for me to see that what came easily to me, what came with ease, what I was really good at naturally had any benefit had any value to others. And why? Because I was busy working twice as hard doing it somebody else's way to try and fit into a box that wasn't made for me, that I was never going to be able to fit into. If you don't know that the standardized norm isn't for you, it was an idea that somebody had and they stood still long enough for other people to agree. You will chop off bits of yourself to fit inside it. And how do you know when you're doing that? Because that's when you're choosing to do the behavior that you believe others should see you doing. Like me jumping up from the sofa when my husband comes in. And how do you know what your understanding, because everybody's understanding of it is slightly different. How do you know what your understanding of the standardized norm looks like? Well, answer this. How are you supposed to be? What is the normal behavior that you try really hard to do and it just feels awful to you? You may recognize this because of the conflict you feel inside when you want to do something different, when you want to do a certain something and everything in your brain is telling you that that's not what you should be doing. Catch those shoulds. Maybe normal is being married and you want to be single. Maybe being normal is being a struggling artist. 
and you're actually a perfectly happy one. Maybe being normal means eating three meals a day and you genuinely prefer and your body prefers grazing. Maybe being normal is being employed and in your heart of hearts, you really want to start your own business. You want to be an entrepreneur. If you can find space to allow yourself to see that there is not one human in this whole world who fits the standardized norm, who universally pleases their family and their culture and is doing exactly what they want to be doing, who universally all around in every area of their life is doing what they want, deeply, deeply desiring want, and that that matches exactly what society tells them they should be doing, that that, does, that just doesn't exist, right? If it does, totally let me know. I would be fascinated. If you can allow yourself space to see that, that, that normal was decided by somebody long ago who just had enough people listening to formalize this idea that benefited most probably only them in one area, and this has been repeated in other areas, then maybe you can find space to see that you get to define your version of normal. You get to be the person that stands inside your body, your system, and have yourself listen for long enough. Even if normal is a word that you want to keep using, you might not want to. I don't particularly like it. <laughs> when we move past the standardized norm, we can allow for functional differences without it meaning anything about value or worth for you and for all of the humans that you are in contact with. When your worth is no longer connected to what it is you produce in the world, how it is you speak in the world, what it is you look like in the world, all of those things, all of those things mean nothing of, absolutely nothing about your worth. Your worth is 100% no matter what, no matter what you choose to do, no matter what you choose to not do, say, not say, however you behave, nothing to do with your worth. Then perhaps that definition of who it is you wish to be when you are feeling yourself, whether you choose to call that normal or not, that space allows you to see that the things that have been created by other people for other people's benefit is peer pressure from dead people that has been carried like a baton through the generations. Let's redefine normal as difference. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope very much that you did, don't forget to hit subscribe so all future episodes get automatically downloaded to your listening platform. And come hang out with me over on Instagram. My handle is at sallyhardy underscore coach. 